This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The data that the SK will generate in one day, if you could download it as a song and play the song, the song would last for two million years. So it's huge amounts of data this thing will generate. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. In mid-July this year, science and music lovers alike donned their Wellington boots and rain ponchos and made the journey to Jodrell Bank Observatory for the fourth annual Blue Dot Festival. The star-studded lineup included Helen Sherman, the first British astronaut, Jim Al-Khalili, science writer and author, an incredible 3D concert experience from Kraftwerk, and the post-punk sounds of New Order. We sent BBC Science Focus's new editorial assistant, Amy Barrett, to the festival, where she chatted to a few of the speakers at the event. Not bad for your first week on the job, eh? First up was Libby Jackson, Human Exploration Programme Manager at the UK Space Agency who took to the mission control stage to talk about the future of space exploration and the UK's role in that future. While some looked back across the 50 years since the Apollo moon landings, she talked to Amy about advances in the space industry, human exploration and the Blue Dot experience. So, Libby, tell us uh, what your talk is going to be about today. Um, I'm talking on the mission control stage at one o'clock today, and it's called UK Goes to the Moon. And what the talk is looking at is 
really what the UK has been doing in all the lunar missions. Um, so back to Apollo, which everybody thinks of as, as an American endeavor, the flag was there. Um, what happened um, after the Apollo missions, there, there was a big gap for, for some time. And then in the 1990s, we started going back to the moon and the UK had scientific instruments on those. And um, looking forward to, to what we're going to do in the future and what the UK is doing there. So, so we really have been involved in the different parts of lunar exploration right through. Um, and people don't know what we're up to. So sort of sharing those stories and, and uh, yeah, shining a light on all of it. And so why are you telling this story? What, what brings you to tell this to the people at Blue Dot? So my job at the UK Space Agency is the Human Exploration Programme Manager. So I look after everything uh, that the UK does in the field of human exploration, which involves astronauts and Tim Peake. It also includes all the science that we do on the International Space Station and on lots of facilities on Earth that mimic different parts of gravity. So we've got things like parabolic flights where you can go and be weightless for 30 seconds at a time. So I I'm, do all of that. I, I look after the, the science, the industry. I work with the academics and, and industry to make sure the UK can get the most benefit out of our activities in that area and that we've got the facilities that scientists need to go and do this kind of research. So, so my day job is, is all about um, astronauts and, and, and human spaceflight. And it's also been a lifelong passion of mine. And I've been working in the field for, for over a decade. Um, I worked in mission control for uh, a number of years and I grew up devouring the stories of Apollo. So it's a personal interest too, but so all of that sort of comes together um, and I'm, I'm bringing that, that view of human space flight to it um, and the history and uh, yeah, just say, just like shining a light on what's going on. So you're going to be talking on the mission control stage later today. Mm. Yesterday on that stage was Helen Sharman. She was. Um, she was talking about how you know she first heard that advert and wasn't sure whether to apply or not because she didn't think space was for her. Um, is that likely to ever happen again? Is there ever going to be a chance for someone with no prior experience to, to go and, and be sort of what Helen did all that time ago? Yeah, definitely. And it's, and it's coming and, and there'll be two different ways. So Helen had no prior experience but no astronaut who gets selected has experience of being an astronaut it's one of the reasons the training takes so long when, when, when you're selected it, it, it takes two years just to pass your basic training it can be five years before you ever go in space so Helen was selected and went through by she was selected by going through a full medical uh, physiological um, selection process um, that was done back then um, in, in the early 90s. She flew in 1991 in, in a private process. But the UK since has joined the European Space Agency's human spaceflight programs. That was how Tim Peake uh, came to be selected as an astronaut back in 2007 and 2008. And he also just um, applied to an advert. And we're expecting the European Space Agency to put out another call for astronauts again in the coming years because um, their astronaut core is, is growing. We, we're looking ahead to these new human missions that are going to be uh, going out into low Earth orbit. We need astronauts for the future. And the UK is a member of the European Space Agency, and we now, unlike back in the days of Helen, um, contribute to those human spaceflight programs, so, so British citizens um, are eligible for that process. And also, there's, there's this new exciting... Um, thing that's coming on the horizon which is commercial space flight um, we're seeing it here in the UK uh, possibly um, we've got 
spaceports that are being developed up in Scotland um, and down in Cornwall and, and indeed um, possibly in other places too. And down in Cornwall, they're looking at horizontal um, access to space. And that's how Virgin Galactic um, are going to take paying passengers up onto suborbital space rides. So you can go and spend six minutes um, in weightlessness. I don't know um, if, if Virgin's plans are to come down to Cornwall. I should, I should make that very clear. But um, we are seeing space flight developing in the UK and certainly around the world, you're having these companies which are selling tickets um, to people. So um, also on the International Space Station now, we are um, using commercial companies, or will be very soon, using commercial companies to put to take astronauts to and from the International Space Station. You've got SpaceX and Boeing. And, and you can buy a seat on that. Um, so it's not for everyone yet, but I, I say this to children, and I really mean it. If, if they start saving... In the future, going into space as, as for not as a as a career astronaut for six months, but but as an experience, I think will be like um, what Concorde used to be like when I was young. I would see Concorde fly over uh, the house every day. I lived in southeast London, and it was a it was a dream that one day I might be able to buy a ticket to go on Concorde, and it would have been a once in a lifetime experience. But it was a sort of an achievable thing that if you work hard and you save hard and, and you decide that's your priority, you could do. So. There absolutely will be opportunities for, for people either to apply um, to be an astronaut one day or to, to save some money and go into space. Um, so it's 50 years since the Apollo landing. Um, what is going on 50 years later that wasn't then? Yeah, 50 years. What, what a thing that the, the moon landings were, are, will be such an iconic part of history and um, so the UK Space Agency has been working with the Arts and Humanities Research Council to to capture people's memories of those times, the inspiration um, and, and we've had some wonderful responses. Uh, we've published an e-book um, that you can see on moonlandingmemories.com where, where, where there's, there's 50 of these and it's brilliant to see people who have watched those uh, moon landings and then were inspired to follow a career in space. Some people just remember them because they got engaged um, or, or one lady I think um, delayed going to the hospital to give birth because she wanted to see that. And another one I really remember was that um, one family got their children who were for like one and three up and they said, you won't remember this, but we want to be able to say that you watched it. And, and that, to have that people had that understanding then of how iconic it was going to be, I, I still find amazing. Um, and those memories really have been wonderful. But it's also been great to see and hear how the moon landings inspired people who weren't there and I'm one of those the reason I ended up getting so interested in space dreaming of working in mission control and now still don't get to believe that my job is is human spaceflight um is because it I, I just devoured stories of, of those Apollo missions when I was young and I would read about what was going on in mission control and, and the problem solving and the engineering and how they did it all and when I was young in in the 80s the 1970s when it was really happening, 69, 70, 71, was a distant memory. So it was a real iconic time. But what I get really excited about, you said, what are we doing now, is, is that what we are doing now is getting ready to send humans back to the moon. So there are our missions being planned now, being built now. The UK is involved in those um, where we will see humans go back 
towards the moon. We're going to build something called the Lunar Gateway, which is going to be this small space station out near the moon. It's going to be visited by the Orion spacecraft that NASA is building with the European Space Agency. And there's a big meeting at the end of this year with the European Space Agency where, where the decisions get made and the funding gets made. And, and we hope that, that Europe will commit to being part of this, that the UK will be a part of it. And so we're going to send humans back to the moon and we're going to do it all with modern technology, with 4K, colour, TV, live streaming, Twitter, you name it. And I get really excited when I think, what is that going to do for today's young people? And, and we're all going to have our moon memories and our moon landing moment. And of course we do it, for the, not for the inspiration. We do, I, I have to write the business cases that explain the good science and the good economic reasons. And we get so much technology from this um, spins out. The UK is great at telecommunications and, and we're going to use that to be, hopefully for, for our contributions. Um, so, so all of that comes together. But, but one of the reasons we all, I think, connect with exploration and going to the moon is because we're humans and we all like to explore and we all wonder what's over the hill, around the corner or up the next mountain. And, and whilst no business case uh, will ever stack up for us to go to the moon just because we should and because we'd like to, I, I, I still think the inspirational parts of that are there and, and the memories that we will see through what we're about to do are, to me, as exciting as what we've seen from Apollo 50 years ago. Why do you think experiences like Blue Dot and other science festivals, uh, why is that a, a good way of communicating the message and, and telling people about what is coming up for the UK in terms of space flight and space industry? It's really important that everybody does understand what we're doing. The UK is really uh, very good at doing things in space and they don't always remember that. It's sad. Um, you see it around Blue Dot, actually. Lots of people have got NASA T-shirts on. Um, some people will know that the European Space Agency is there. And then we like to say, hey, we're the UK Space Agency. We are your representation. UK taxpayers' money comes to us and it's, it's, your, it's your investments as the public that, that go into these things. And so it's very important to communicate that for people to understand what's going on. And somewhere like Blue Dot, is a great place because it brings people together from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, they come, some come from the music. We've got great headliners here uh, that people are coming to, and, and they'll, you know, wander into these talks about space or science and all of the great things that are going on, and discover things they weren't expecting. Other people come for the science, where I will say, hey, you know, you know about science, but did you know about space and what's going on? So it's a really great platform uh, to do all of that, and, and indeed because Blue Dot then then share all of that science content. It's a really really great platform for science communication and for spreading the word and, and just telling people what we're doing. Also in attendance at the festival was Tom Shakespeare, Professor of Disability Research at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Tom was involved in three events over the weekend, talking assistive technology, the ethics of genetics and being an activist. So, Tom, tell us what you're here at Blue Dot to do. So, uh, my name's Tom Shakespeare, and I'm Professor of um, Disability Research at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And I'm here to do three talks. I've done two of them so far. And the first was a panel, and it was really about um, what's happening to disabled bodies in the future, um, which sounds pretty technical. But what we're interested in, in that talk, was the fact that a lot of the assistive technology developed for disabled people has become commonplace for everybody. So, for example, um, many people use audiobooks 
those started as talking okay. books for the blind, and they're really useful. Um, almost everybody benefits from um, doors that open automatically. Those are for disabled people too. A lot of the things that we take for granted um, developed to help people who have impairments. And so as we think of the future, as we think of brain implants for people with spinal cord injury or stroke, if we think of um, uh, exoskeletons, if we think of, um, uh, you could call them bionic hands and communication devices, it's true that one thing drives this is the military space, things like that. But another thing is disability. And one of our speakers, uh, Professor Andy Meir from Salford, was talking about, are we going to be transhuman? Are we going to eliminate disease? Others of us were more skeptical. So that was one debate. And then I later did a talk about non-invasive prenatal testing. And it was called um, Canaries in the Coal Mine. And really it was about, can we ensure that women and men have real choice in um, prenatal diagnosis? and talking about a new technology, which the uh, industry has called non-invasive prenatal testing, but is actually better known as cell-free DNA, where um, DNA from uh, the developing fetus is detected in the mother's blood. And the advantage of this is that there is no risk. Uh, that's why the proponents of it call it non-invasive. Uh, but it can tell you a lot. And I was trying to argue in terms of choice, and true choice depends on information. So we need to know all about what the disability is. I told the audience I had a G2A transposition at 380 of my FGFR3 gene, which left them cold. But when they get to know me, they realize that that genetic description, although accurate, doesn't tell you the whole story. And it's the same with Down syndrome or anything else. I went to see the Down syndrome actress, Sarah Gordy, on Tuesday at the Royal National Theatre. Fantastic performance and jellyfish, very funny. Um, she shows what somebody with Down syndrome can now achieve. So not saying that anybody has to test or has to terminate, but saying people have the right not to test, not to terminate, if that's right for them. And then later today, I'm part of a uh, panel on protest. And I think because um, the disability rights movement has protested uh, a lot over the years, and it's achieved a lot of changes. For example, I live in London. I can go on any bus in London. I take the bus every day to work, and that's liberating. But it didn't used to be like that. It's like that because disabled people chained themselves to buses, brought city centres to a halt like Extinction Rebellion are now doing, and saying this has got to change. So there's a sort of symbolic thing. And when you see all of the um, young people leaving school on a Friday for the climate strike, it's a similar thing. It's saying there is a generation here who's going to live with this mess. You, uh, people in power, should do something about it, should listen yeah, yeah. to us. So I'm talking about that sort of protest. I'm really interested in about your first sort of panel that you were saying. So these accessibility measures that have become commonplace. I think a lot of the problem is that those ones that we or abled people take for granted um, now are being attacked by uh, maybe climate change, like plastic straws, for instance. Um, so that's something that a lot of disabled people like myself rely on. Um, but I think people don't quite understand the implications of, of what they're doing. So how do you balance that as someone who wants to be an activist and protest, but also you know, have your own... Sure. Well, I mean, you, know, you, you only have to look around this room at crisp packets and uh, 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 plasticated cups and all the rest of it to know that, sadly, um, uh, uh, unnecessary uh, single-use plastics are everywhere. So the issue is, where do you start? Um, 
And I don't think you start with straws. Uh, you start with packaging. And you start with lots of things that nobody needs. Um, if you go around a supermarket, you can see all the extraordinary wastage of cling film and things. Um, start with those, and then let's come back and have a chat about straws. Um, we know that there are um, uh, vegetable-based alternatives to um, non-degradable plastics. Um, so there are solutions. Uh, what disabled people are, I think, protesting about is the idea that we start with something that they rely on. Um, I mean, I use silicon in, in you know, medical products every day. And you can say, oh, well, that's a waste of uh, plastics. Tommy shouldn't have that. Then I die. So um, uh, it's, it is a matter of life and death for disabled people. We saw recently a lady, very sadly, who impaled herself on a metal straw. Um, uh, so, you know, some of the alternatives are not appropriate, not safe. And I think we should start with plastics which are not life preserving and then move on maybe to think of alternatives um, it's interesting uh, 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 one of our colleagues who's um, challenging us at the um, session on activism is saying you know what are academics doing about this um, and I was stung by that and I thought well I'm not an expert on um, sustainability I'm an expert on social relations and um, disability rights and so forth what can I do I can't give you an expert view on uh, environmental crisis and global warming. Um, however, any of us who are public figures can do something, and all of us who are academics can think, well, is your flight really necessary? We get invited to a lot of conferences. I don't go to conferences anymore that I don't have to go to. Um, I send a video, and I think that a lot of, not just academics, but UN um, you know, people, including the head of the UN Climate Agency, travel far too much. And in the 21st century, we've got um, all sorts of video conferencing, presence software, and all the rest of it. We should invest a lot more uh, in enabling people to communicate with each other across time and space without flying. And I think academics can do their bit with that. And how does, sort of coming to Blue Dot and talking at places like Blue Dot, how does that help communicate sort of your message and the wider message of the science industry? Well, it's very interesting because the woman who runs um, this wonderful centre at Drodra Bank is named Teresa Anderson. And she's been uh, the real uh, core of this festival over the years. She's a wonderful person. She used to work for me um, and, and my friend Duncan Dallas because we set up a network called Café Scientifique. And this is the idea that ordinary citizens can meet in cafes, pubs, bars, theatres, um, art centres, anywhere, and talk to a scientist, learn from them, uh, explore with them, debate with them. And Teresa was our first uh, 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 employee. So she went around the UK setting up cafes here Fiques. And now there are more, and you can call them science cafes if you want, there are more than 100 science cafes in the UK. Worldwide, there are well over 1,000. They've really taken off. Now... That's not just because Teresa worked hard, it's because it's a damn good idea. And what it's doing is making science part of culture and it's making science more democratic because you can be a Nobel Prize winner or fellow of the Royal Society, but you're still going to put your face and your voice and your mind on the line talking to ordinary people in a pub. And, uh, you know, people like Jim Al-Khalili, who it's lovely to see here, does that. And rightly, because we fund this science and we have a right to hear from these scientists. And they're not opposed to it, they, they, they enjoy it. Um, and by making the public more scientifically literate, we have better debates. I think vital is to have more debates um, 
either uh, could be online, but often face to face. And the trouble is, in a culture based on Twitter, based on Facebook, based on social media, we don't have debates. We are out of the habit of reading long form articles and books which explore a crisis uh, or explore anything. And that's really wrong. And I think the more debates, the fewer slogans, the more thought that we have, the better likely we are to deal with a lot of the crises, environmental, social, uh, uh, political, that we face. Listening, talking, exploring is what it should be about. And it's two-way as well here at Bluda, isn't it? So after your talks, you, you get some amazing questions. Yep. Is there anything that's come out I of I think this? absolutely two-way, because, I mean... In the old days, there was this model that the public were... It was called a deficit model. Scientists knew stuff. Public didn't know stuff. Scientists told public, public happier. I'm not trying to say that. I'm, obviously, everybody has got expertise. In my community, the disability community, we talk about experts by experience. That's people with lived experience, maybe of disability or other issues. And scientists and academics have expertise by research. They've read stuff, they understand stuff at a very deep level, but you need both and you need dialogue and you need scientists to learn from the public. One of the things that I'm really excited about, about cafe, science cafes, is that often the speakers come away and say, I never knew people were concerned about that. Or that's a really interesting question. I'm going to do some research about that. And you know, they come away as excited as the members of the audience who've heard them and debated with them. And you're absolutely right. It's about two-way dialogue. It's about explaining. It's about listening on both sides. Speaking in the Star Pavilion at Jodrell Bank, where she began her career, Danielle George brought the invisible universe to light. She spoke to us about the Lovell Radio Telescope based at Jodrell, new endeavours such as the SKA, Square Kilometre Array Telescope Project, and what we can learn from looking at our skies. Hi, Dan. Welcome to Blue Dot. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're talking to us about today? Yes. So I'm um, a professor of electronic engineering um, at the University of Manchester. My research is actually... So I, I started out, out life at Jodrell Bank Observatory um, as, a, as a junior engineer at the time, um, working on amazing projects uh, here at Jodrell. And then in 2006, I then got my first lectureship position um, in the School of Electrical and Electronic Engineering. So, uh, so moved there, but my research is still for instrumentation for radio telescopes around the world. So today I'm talking about uh, one of sort of the forefathers of radio astronomy, which people tend not to think about as, as one of the forefathers. He is um, Marconi, the um, Italian engineer who we know for radio communication. And of course, without his inventions, we wouldn't be able to communicate in the way we do today. So I'm talking about him and the invisible universe and um, his, um, his sort of profound effect on uh, radio astronomy and the radio telescopes that we, we know today. What do you mean by the invisible universe? So within the, the radio spectrum, the, it just looks invisible. So if you looked at something um, in the optical, so with an optical telescope, let's say a, um, a galaxy or a set of galaxies, there's a, a set of galaxies called M81. Um, and if you look at them, uh, you, can, you can get lots of information about what they look like in the optical, but it's not until you observe them with a radio telescope that you see much more detail and it's absolutely invisible to us in the optical. You have to use radio um, to, to be able to see a lot of this more detail of the galaxies and how they actually interact with each other you'd miss that completely in the optical and so um you mentioned here at Jodrell we've obviously got the Laval 
um, telescope. Have you, is that something you've worked on? Is that yeah? The Lovell telescope. Yes, yeah. Lots of times I got stuck in the uh, several times <laughs> in the focus box uh, when a thunder and lightning storm came, um, and we uh, we were in the focus box. And of course, it swings a lot in the wind, and so we got stuck in there. We were we were changing one of the receivers and got stuck in there for a while. So yes, been up at many times. <laughs> and so the kind of you know information that it can tell us, what can we then do with that? What practical applications does it have here on Earth? Um, so I mean, it, it's. It's changing the the way we understand the universe um, and where it's going, where it came from. Um, we can understand with radio telescopes, not just the Lovell, but with you know some of the major facilities that you see around the world now, um, where where the universe is sort of going, where it's come from, um, but also working out, you know, if there are other planets out there. That or other systems out there that have the same sort of um, sort of organic chemistry than than we do, um, and so by sort of observing all of these other things, we can actually get to know quite a lot about our own system as well, our own solar system. So uh, what it was in the early years and perhaps where it's going as well. Oh, so you can almost use it to predict what the future of the Earth and our solar system. Indeed, yes, yeah, yeah. By observing other things and seeing that um, the the chemistry of uh, of what's happening in those systems is the same as ours, either in the past or potentially in the future. And so, what is it about Blue Dot and the festival experience that allows you to kind of communicate this? You know, why why is this a really good venue for aside from being you know right next to the level? Oh, it's great. I mean, it. I mean, it. The the venue itself obviously is is iconic. So you know, it, I think it inspires everyone. But this is you just get people who probably wouldn't go to a science festival or a science talk, um, and they come and and generally they they love it. You know, it's, they love hearing a bit more about the science, a bit more about the technology, the engineering, and it's just not something that they'd normally go to. So, and I'm a big believer of taking the the science, the engineering out to people rather than sort of saying come and listen, you know, come to the science talks or come to the science festival. Let's get it out there to the to where people are. And I think Blue, does, Blue Dot does that really well. Are there any other ways you can take the telescope? I mean, the level telescope is massive. How can you take that and communicate it to people that maybe can't come to Manchester to see it? Um, well, they do a lot of online things. It's actually a, a blow-up planetarium. So, um, <laughs> blow up, an inflatable planetarium. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and you know, people take that around to, to different areas, um, and especially maybe people who who um, who couldn't get to either to Manchester or who just don't sort of engage with science. Like I say, take it out there, take it to the the um, sort of low participation neighbourhoods, take it to to maybe schools where they don't have have those sort of luxuries, those benefits. Um, and and I love doing that. I love going out to to schools and seeing the. The, the children's faces, you know, when you're talking about things, and they're like, wow, that's amazing, you know, it's, and seeing that sort of spark of interest, I think is great. And sort of space and the, the great unknown is like a really good topic to, to introduce, you know, young, the, new, the next generation to STEM in general. It's, it's a very accessible way, I think, of communicating that, isn't it? Um, I wonder if you could talk about the 
the projects that are lined up, so SKA, uh, can you tell us about that and, and what's that going to look like for the future of the UK in the wider global picture? Yeah, so so the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, is an amazing set of telescopes. I mean, this this will be the largest facility uh, mankind has ever built. So it's um, what they call the CERN of the skies, really. So um, it will be 50 times more sensitive than any other radio instrument. And that will allow scientists to answer key and ambitious questions in in astrophysics, cosmology, fundamental physics. Um, I think my favourite fact about it is it will be so sensitive, it will be able to detect an airport radar-like signal on a planet 10 light years away. Um, and the the amount of data the SK will generate is enormous. So it's estimated that the, um, so it's it's made up of, of different types of antennas. So you have sort of the, the low frequency dipole, you know, the old sort of aerials that we had on our houses um, and also some dishes. So much more like the Lovell telescope, but smaller. And there will be potentially millions of these low frequency dipoles and thousands of these dishes when it's all made and that's spread across Western Australia and in a remote area in South Africa so they'll all be connected um, and the data that the SK will generate in one day if you could download it as a song and play the song the song would last for two million years so it's a huge amounts of data this thing will generate and um and I mean, what will they discover? They just don't know. You know, it is absolutely the unknown. But because because the the facility, the telescope will be so big, it's going to allow scientists to really probe deep into space um, in a in a way that that they've just never been able to uh, before. That sounds amazing, and so much data to last that long. It's are there enough scientists to, to handle that data or is it is this something that the next generation is going to have to be working on? How long do you think this will last for? Oh yeah, it's a, there's probably not enough scientists but also there's not enough computing power <laughs> in the world at the minute. You know, you, you literally wouldn't be able to keep all of the raw data um, if the SK was built right now because we just don't have the computing power in the world. So, um, but, but we for sure need the next generation to be working on this. Um, there are some amazing telescopes that are um, um, uh, observing and, and discovering things that they just don't know what it means. You know, there's one of the other telescopes I work on is ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array. And that uh, is 66 sort of high precision antennas in Chile. So 5,000 meters above, above sea level in, in Chile. And um, and that earlier this year, that set of of telescopes uh, found uh, a young star. It's about fifteen hundred light years away from us, but a young star, um, and it was uh, glowing salt at millimeter wavelengths. So salt, just normal table salt, sodium chloride, was glowing at millimeter wavelengths. And you know they just don't know what this means you know it was an amazing discovery and it's the first time salt has been seen glowing from a from a young star so it's trying to work out what does it mean can we can we find out more about the chemistry of that star and um and the formation of it uh by by looking at salt you know it's incredible but you know the scientists at the minute need the the next generation to be working on these things because we just don't know the answers to them that was Danielle George, Tom Shakespeare and Libby Jackson talking about their experience at Blue Dot Festival 2019. You might have to wait a whole year for the next festival, but in the meantime you can still catch up on the latest science and technology news, features and interviews in this month's issue of BBC Science Focus. 
Pick up the summer 2019 issue to get the lowdown on plastic waste, discover the spacecraft that will visit Saturn's moon, and the incredible technology that sniffs out disease. As always, there is much, much more inside. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.